welcome to May 9th, 2018, the Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fezenden from AMTS and your English language host. This monthly webinar series is dedicated to providing technical talks from internationally recognized educators for listeners around the world. Paula Torillo from Cordoba, Argentina translates and hosts the Spanish language webinar. And Tom Long from Hemingway in China will be hosting in Mandarin today. There will be a question and answer period following the presentation. Listeners can submit questions through me, Paula, or Tom. A complete recording of archived webinars as well as a question and answer session for each will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentations while driving, and we have quite a few, we have converted the videos to MP3 files that can be downloaded to your device for offline listening. Very pleased to host Dr. Phil Cardoso today. He's an assistant professor of animal sciences at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where he conducts research and provides outreach programs in the area of dairy nutrition and reproduction. Dr. Cardoso was born and raised in Brazil and soon discovered his passion, dairy cows, and got involved with livestock operations in the southern part of Brazil. His experience with dairy farms in Brazil and the USA brings a different perspective and management skills to his research and teaching. He obtained a PhD degree in ruminant nutrition from the University of Illinois and master's and DVM degrees from the College of Veterinary Medicine at Universidade Federale do Rio Grande do Sul, and he'll, he can correct me on that, UFRGS in Porto, Al, I'm not even going to try, Algeria, Brazil. He's open. He can pronounce this for me. How do you say, um, where, where did you go to school for your veterinary medicine degree, Dr. Cardoso? So that would be Porto Alegre. Thank you. So beautiful yeah. when you say it. <laughs> um, Phil will deliver the final presentation focusing on transition cow nutrition. This is part of our series. We had Laura Hernandez in March, Tom Overton in April, and Dr. Cardoso is bringing it to a close. So thank you, Phil, for joining us. Um, Paula and I are going to be punchy because this is our second webinar for the day, so we're all warmed up. To the audience, if you have questions during the presentation, please type them in the chat or the question and answer window. We'll answer them at the end of the presentation. Additionally, we have a few videos incorporated into Phil's presentation. I will have to briefly interrupt to queue them up. So I'm going to thank you, Phil. I'm going to turn it all over to you so that you can progress the slides, and then I will mute myself and, and become mostly quiet. Okay. Mostly. Thank on. you very much, Marin, and I like the mostly. Are <laughs> uh, we going to be hearing from you at some point? Yeah. Hopefully some laughs or something? Well, uh, I, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. I'm going to be quiet now. Okay. Bye. And uh, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this uh, webinar series. I mean, it's amazing, you know, how many good speakers and, you know, very nice people that were talking uh, and then we'll be talking. I'm very pleased to to and very humble to be part of this. I would like to share a little bit of the information that we've collected at the University of Illinois throughout the uh, years that I've been a uh, professor, assistant professor there, and I also try to bring a little bit of information from other research groups that kind of hopefully will tell you a story and kind of uh, make my point here. So I'll get started here. Let's see if I can. 
by showing this picture, okay, there's a cow just calved, and any place I go in the world, and I can be talking to farmers, students, or people in academia, and I ask, hey, what do you want from this cow, right? And everybody tells me the same thing. Everybody gets it right. We want that cow to be healthy, no diseases. We want her to be producing a lot of milk. And also, we want her to breed back. And they know they want that. And the reason they want that because they know that with those things, money or profitability is going to come. So what we as, I think, researchers have to take the charge is, okay, that's what farmers need. How can we give that? So I think that's kind of the way that anything that we can feed during the transition period, we have to make an assessment, hopefully not just only on the health part of the things, on the production, but also is that impacting if that cow is going to breed back again and get pregnant or not. So uh, that's hopefully what I'm going to try to do here, tell a story that gives back those three points to the farmers that you guys are working with, or if you're a farmer, that's what you want for your herd, right? Uh, this is an old story. We know that cows have been um, producing more and more milk, and we know that conception rate or fertility have been going down. Uh, nonetheless, since 2009, when we start uh, paying more attention and maybe breeding or selecting more for um, fertility items, uh, more recently with Dorton pregnancy rate, we've been able to turn that around. But uh, we always have that map on our mind that, okay, cows are producing more and more milk. However, fertility has been uh, decreasing. And one of the points that I want to make is that, you know, uh, an association is not a causation. And that brings a lot of problems for us in our society. Uh, back to kids where we should not vaccinate kids because that makes them have problems. Uh, back here, I'm going to try to justify this association and not causation by showing some very nice data from Santos in his time in California. So a pretty good amount of cows, more than 6,000 cows. And what he did was to classify those cows in those four herds and cows that are producing less milk or more milk. So he divided in quartiles. So you can see here that if not, you can see that the group that produce less milk or more milk they, if anything, the group that are producing more milk come, came more in heat or were cycling by 65 days uh, in milk. And at the same point, the cows that are producing more milk, they also got more pregnant or a higher proportion or percentage of them got pregnant when compared to cows that produce less milk. So my point here being that, yes, high milk production can happen with good fertility. But of course, when you talk about the cows that are producing more, perhaps they're gonna be more confounded with better management, better comfort, better nutrition. And that's one point that is hugely important. And I think Gordy Jones is gonna talk about this in the next webinar that's about comfort and behavior. We are not gonna talk about it here, but it's hugely important during that transition period and for cows to be able to breed back or good reproduction and also milk production. We're going to talk more on the nutrition side of things on this webinar. Uh, the other thing that sometimes gets a little bit uh, um, not as well look at it in farms is the embryonic loss. So pretty much 
when we check cows, they're pregnant. When we check cows again, they're not pregnant anymore. What happened there? So this is a very interesting table. So putting together here several trials, okay, where they have different types of treatment. That's not very relevant. But they all preg check cows at around 30 days, and then they preg check cows again around 45 days, let's say. Here is the difference in days from one point to the other one. And you can see here that roughly from 10 to 20% of those cows lost their pregnancy or their embryo just disappeared. So we may agree that, hey, let's say 15% is something that is normal. So one of the things that right off the bat, I'm gonna say and encourage you guys to check at your farms or the farms that you're working with, what is your number? So if you palpate cows at 30 days and then at 45, what's your number? And follow that through time just to make sure that things are okay for your farm. And if it is 15%, again, that's something that we consider normal or physiological, but I'm gonna make a case here that I'm gonna go back to this number in the end of the presentation and say, we have opportunities to improve this number here. Dr. Cardoso? Yep. Could you slow down just a little bit? Um, the translators are struggling. Oh, really? So I need to speak a little bit more fast. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> they will appreciate it so much. <laughs> okay. Or I can speak a little bit in English, un poquito en español para ser un poco. Oh, that probably would help a lot. <laughs> Perfecto. But in Chinese, then it's just ni hao, ni hao ma. That's it. Yeah, I got it. Thank you. Okay. Thank I will you. speak a little bit more despacito. Okay. Uh, the other point that we want to make here is that things that are happening during the transition period, uh, they also are going to affect reproduction. And I'm showing here one of the former Jose Santos student. Now he's at the University of Guelph, did a pretty nice uh, work here where he classified first cows that had health problem or not. And he classified that in a single clinical case or subclinical and multiple clinical cases or multiple subclinical cases. And one of the things that we can see this when you look at pregnancy, that when I compare cows that don't have the disease, they perform better or they are more pregnant at day 30 than cows that had a single clinical case or multiple clinical case. And the same thing happens with subclinical when they have two, and that could be subclinical ketosis, subclinical hypocalcemia, if they have uh, subclinical metritis, uh, those are some of the diseases that we're talking about, the hypocalcemia, or in this case, uh, uh, milk fever, uh, clinical or subclinical. So one of the ideas is that there are factors that are happening at that cow during the transition period so those disorders are happening early lactation, but they may be affecting all those follicles that are coming through the wave in the ovaries, and that's the follicles that most likely we are gonna be breeding those cows to at 60 to 70 or 90 days after calving, right? So uh, this is uh, one of the proposals. I mean, we are not 100% sure of how much that is take, but we would say, 90 to 100 days it's going to take from a primordial follicle to become that follicle that's going to ovulate and we're going to breed. And that's why most of the time uh, when we have a heat stress problem, for example, 
we don't see the effect right away, but we're going to see that effect two, three months later. That's when we're going to be uh, having trouble getting those cows pregnant or preg rates or conception rates is going to be down or going to be down at that point. So everything that we do that prevents disorders around the transition period, they are going to impact fertility and uh, conception rates of those cows. Now, when we talk about pregnancy, and this is kind of a, a, like a very short summary, there are seven points, seven factors that are going to affect pregnancy. That's it, those seven. Today, we are going to cover body condition score and talk about uterine involution and, and um, that uterine environment. We are going to talk about the ovulation uh, and fertilization of the quality of oocytes, some idea and assessment on the quality of the oocytes. And we're also going to talk about an embryo producing that thing called interferon tau. So uh, if we go back and we think about it, okay, we are breeding a cow. So that would be day zero or day one. At day 14 to 18, that's a huge moment, or that embryo is going to start signaling the cow and saying, hey, please, don't come in heat again because you're pregnant, okay? And that signaling, that little voice is sent by this protein called interferon tau. And the point that I want to make is that the size of the embryo is directly related with the amount of interferon tau that is being produced by the embryo and it gets to the cow to tell her that she's pregnant. Please, don't come in heat again. So I'm going to come back to this concept as well in the end. So larger embryos, they're going to produce more interferon tau. They're going to have more chances or are stronger signal to tell the cow that she's pregnant. And that is also involved in cows getting pregnant or not. So we're going to talk about these three points today. This is what I think should be our proposed transition period. So we usually classify, okay, cows three weeks before calving and cows three weeks after calving. That's the transition period. But like I said, we, as much as we can, let, have an, need to have an assessment on things that are going to influence that cow getting pregnant or not. And if we do that, pretty much you have our cycle going here. Cows calve, they get pregnant, they calve again, and we keep turning that wheel. And that's what we want to do effortless if possible. Uh, I'm putting here a very interesting um, table that Zoet has uh, provided and is pretty much putting in perspective all those problems that are happening around the transition period and a little bit of the range, so how they're happening and the cost, and this is all based on published literature. So you can have these numbers. I'm not saying that your numbers are this, but it's at least something that we always know that, okay, that costs money as well. That may take my cows out of the herd a little bit sooner, and that may be affecting as well my primordial follicle and therefore uh, reproduction like we see from the work from Ribeiro. So just a nice way of putting those things out there. To understand why these cows go over such a trouble period, and, you know, Drakeley and uh, Grummer, uh, define the transition period as the most challenging for the dairy cow. 
this is one point here I'm putting here on kilos. So a cow that is 725 kilos, pretty much if you want to know in pounds, kind of double that number. So let's say 450 pounds, just to be a little bit on the simple side. But you can see that the amount that she needs to eat in energy before and after calving is very easily met before calving, right? However, after calving, we know that cows cannot eat as much as they want. They start producing milk. So that negative energy balancing, well, this is going to be challenging. Negative ooh, energy balance starts happening. And that's where we have a lot of uh, strategies to try to mitigate that. But bottom line, it's much easier to meet the energy requirements of the cow before calving than after calving. So one thing also that we think, so here uh, using the, the Cornell model, we have here, for example, uh, what is the energy requirement of this cow that I'm describing? This is how much she's able to consume, for example, neural lactation seven days after, and this is how much she's going to milk. But we also have to think about it, not just in energy terms, but also in the protein. And here I'm talking about metabolizable protein. This is how much the cow needs. This is how much usually she is getting. And this is how much is going to milk. So bottom line, cows right after calving, they're not just deficient in energy, but they are deficient in protein as well. So if we think a little bit, and try to understand what drives negative energy balance. And I've heard a lot of people saying, hey, you know, my cows are thin and, and they lose a lot of body condition score, so I have a lot of negative energy balance. But that's because my cows produce too much milk. And they are kind of, in a weird way, kind of proud about it. You know, my cows suck because they are too good, kind of the thing. I just look at the farm and say, are you sure of that? And then I show this data here by directly. So, this is milk yield by week three, right? So we have here a cow that is producing, let's say, 45, 48 kilos of milk per day, roughly 90 pounds per kilo per day, and she has this much negative energy balance. So let's call minus four. You have a cow here that is producing 25 kilos, more than half, less than half. And she also is at the same level of negative energy balance. So milk production have nothing to do with negative energy balance. If there was an association about those two uh, items, this is the line that we would see. As the cows produce more milk, they're going to be lower and lower and lower in more in negative energy balance. But that's not what we are seeing here, right? What we see is that no association. So, uh, one of the things that you may think about, okay, but you're talking only about milk yield. How about if I put protein and fat of the milk together and I do the solids corrected milk? Guess what? Same thing. No association at all between those two variables, milk or negative energy balance, right? So what is the association then? What is what is the deal? And bottom line, we see that there is a huge association between 
how much the cow is eating or dry matter intake with negative energy balance. So after calving, if cows eat more, they stay with less negative energy balance. And that's huge. So that's where I know that it's hard for farmers to measure the intake or how much the cows are eating, but you know, everybody tells us that you know you have to pick your fights, you cannot fight everything. This would be a fight that I would pick with the farmer in helping him. I'm not telling you guys to punch farmers. I'm just telling, try to sit down and figure out with him how can he have an assessment of that. If it is every week, go with a shovel over there and measure and divide by the numbers of cows, something. It, it doesn't need to be exactly perfect, but some assessment. And that's going to help hugely the nutritionist to figure out how much those cows are eating and if any difference or in the diet needs or adjustment needs to be done. So that's very important. Intake, very important. So one other thing that we know, and you all know this, you know, what's going on throughout lactation. And of course, if this, those three lines here, they're all parallel to each other. That's not a very good parallel, but if they were all parallel to each other, we would never have problems with cows having metabolic disorders or anything, but that's not the case. So we know that they're gonna lose body condition score to supply that energy that is needed because they are not eating enough in the beginning of lactation. But one thing that we know is that whatever we feed during the dry period will affect the intakes during the fresh period. So that's something that we know. And I can show you one of the research showing this. So what was done here, okay, by Drakeless group here, they were feeding the same diet before calving, right? And they were either calculating the requirement of the cow and feeding 81% of that, or they just fed ad libdom. Hey cows, eat whatever you want. Like almost all farms do that, right? And two things from this slide. First one, cows, they eat more than what they need. So if you think that you're gonna put a bucket of M&Ms in front of somebody and they're gonna eat just what they need for that day, cows don't do that. They're gonna eat more than what they need. That's one first thing we saw. But the cows that ate at the control energy, they were able to eat more after calving. So that's the second topic that we saw here. So cows eat more than what they need, and also, if we control what they eat before calving, uh, control energy, they are going to eat more after calving. That was the first indication of that. And here I have uh, these three lines here. So red is going to be the cows that ate whatever they wanted. And again, we talk about the high energy diet, but actually some diets based on corn silage. So it can be the diet that you guys are feeding out there, right? Uh, we're going to classify that diet a little bit later, but the, we believe that controlling the energy or restricting that energy or adding fiber, and we call here the straw, like a rough forage, to limit the intake and by that controlling the intake of energy, the cow behaves similarly uh, metabolically, so they have a lower body condition score than the cows in the high energy. We think that they have lower NIFA when compared to uh, the with the high energy. They have lower amount of 
lipids inside the liver when compared to high energy, and they have lower beta-hydroxybutyrate as well. So metabolically, restricting the energy or giving fiber to control the intake and by then controlling the energy, they seem to behave metabolically the same. So one thing that we did, and again, there's a lot of information here that I'm talking about, and I'm going to show more, even more. Any information you guys can ask me, and I can um, make sure you guys get exposed to the papers, and you can read all the tiny bits of information from that, very complete if you want. Just get in touch with us, and we will make sure that happens. So we, put, uh, we did a meta-analysis approach where we put a bunch of cows together from uh, seven different experiments done here in Illinois. And we classify them as getting high energy or a control energy before calving. After calving, all the diets, all the, the trials, they had the same, the same diet, okay? So the only difference was before uh, calving. And one of the things that we saw is that cows that had the control energy diet, they ate more energy after calving. So there's an indication that, again, cows that eat a control energy diet before calving, they're able to consume more energy after calving. One thing, there is a progressive dairyman, um, two uh, articles there that I talk about the 10 steps, but one thing that I think is very helpful is, and it's gonna depend here on the size of your cow, requirements and everything else, but that's just the relationship of the nutritionist with the feeder or the farmer saying, hey, we need to have cows eating at least 22 pounds in the average of the three weeks before calving. If that stuff to start going down, we need to see what's going on. And heat stress can interfere with that. Again, stimulating farmers to have an assessment of the intake before calving. And here's just one idea on how to do it. But you work with your nutritionist and you figure out this. Uh, body condition score, I think it's a tool that is very uh, easy to, to have an assessment, but I think it gets overlooked because we don't know how to use the number. So hopefully I'm gonna suggest you here and give you some ideas and some insights. So if I ask you, okay, tell me, and you got a piece of paper and you have to write that. Tell me what is the body condition score at drying off that you'd like your cows to be? Write the number from one to five, what is the body condition score? Then. Do the same thing. What is the ideal body condition score at calving? You put the number there. And then, what is the body condition score at breeding? What is the number that you want there? I'm going to give you five seconds and let the translator and myself get uh, some air here. Okay, so you got those numbers. What do you want to see from one to five? Keep it there and we're gonna come back to those, okay? You wrote those three numbers, you know what you want. Here you go. Uh, this is a very interesting research done by a few Gainsworth, a group from, uh, uh, from England and from the UK. And what they did here, okay, what happens if I have cows calving fat throughout the lactation. What's gonna happen? And as you guys may know, if you have fat cows on your farm in the dry period, you kind of know what's gonna happen, right? And what's gonna happen? Cows are gonna lose body condition score. But now one thing that is a little bit less insightful is what happens 
with cows that calve thin. So if they have a lower body condition score, what happens with their body condition score throughout lactation? And one of the things that they found was kind of mind-blowing was that cows actually, they gain body condition score. So one point here is that I'm not saying that cows should calve thin. Don't start spreading the news around, hey, Dr. Cardozo, that few guy is telling everybody to have cows calving at body condition score two. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm just telling and challenging you guys to think that maybe that concept of having cows calving at 3.5 is not what we should have today. So cows, depending on their genetics, so that means that every farm is going to be different, at 14 to 16 weeks, they're going to come to the same body condition score, right? So depending on your farm, they may have to calve a little bit thinner so they get to that body condition score at 14, 16 weeks without big changes. And every time, sometimes you hear, oh, our cows are getting thinner, this is why, okay? So this is a research from the same group, and they get cows from studies, older studies from the 80s, or the studies from the 2000s, okay? So what, hap what was the body condition score at calving for those cows to have a zero change in body condition score in the first 10 to 12 weeks of lactation? And they saw that for the older studies, that was 249. For the newer studies, that's 210. So just think about it. 60 years ago, think about the hosting Frisian cow, short little chubby thing, and think about the cows today. Things change. So I'm going to challenge you to think that the 3.5 body condition score that's dry off, and, and, or 3.75 some people, and that may be a little bit different nowadays because our cows are changing. And why I'm telling you that having thin cows is not a good idea. So this is an interesting research, and here we are doing a trimethyl histidine uh, creatinine ratio. So pretty much have an assessment on how much protein is being used from muscle on those cows. So you can see that before calving, everybody is using the same amount of protein coming from muscle. However, after calving, you can see that the cows that are with lower body condition score, they are using more protein that is coming from muscle. So that's not a good thing. So that's what I'm telling you. Hey, having cows with lower body condition score, that's not very a good strategy. But I also think that we don't understand that very well. So if a cow is losing body condition score after calving, I go there, take urine or blood samples, and I see the body BHP, I can tell if she's sick or not. Now, I think cow, what do I do? We don't have any easy cow side measurement that I can do to tell if that cow is in trouble or not. So I think maybe even we should supply more protein to those thin cows. We don't know. I think we should have more research on those areas. So bottom line, I really don't care, and don't get frustrated with me here, uh, but I don't care if you put two or if you put three or four here. I don't care the number you put it here. What I care is that if you get this number and subtract from this number bottom here, the difference, that's what's going to matter. And the same thing from here to here, 
What is the difference? So if you can have your cows change in body condition score be 0.5 or less, you are a champion. That's very awesome and amazing and very hard to get. But if you can keep at 0.75 or lower, okay, the difference between this body condition scores here, you are doing a good job. If you're getting at one body condition score unit change between those items, you are losing in reproduction in health and we could do a whole other webinar just talking about body condition score change or body condition score, how does that affect your herd? So, and one thing that we get caught up sometimes, and, and there's a whole article here that uh, I wrote on Hordes Derriman, but if I go back here, if you can teach your guys to tell me the U or tell me if the cow has the V, that's gonna be a huge thing. So for example, the V means that the cow has three or less body condition score. The U, okay, if I look at the pins of the cows, it's gonna be 325 or more. So those fresh cows, as soon as they get to the U, perhaps is the moment that we need to move them from a different group. So don't let cows get too fat. Perhaps maintaining those cows at 275 and including the U or V in the cows as an item for group change, that can help you to keep the cows thin and keep the cows in good shape. Other things uh, done by, very nicely by the Wisconsin group, um, um, Milo Wiltbank and, uh, and Paul Freaky, is that they measure body condition score at calving and at 21 days postpartum, and they saw that the cows that gained body condition score in that period they got pregnant much faster than the cows that maintained or lost. So there's a huge impact on body condition score loss and reproduction. And in our data, from our meta-analysis, what we saw was that the cows that were eating the control energy diet before calving, from weeks one to six, they lost less body condition score. So again, that may be one of the indications because we just saw that they ate more energy, but also when we look at reproduction, we saw that the cows that got the control energy before calving, they got pregnant a little bit sooner than the high energy. Not huge difference here, but at least it's not bothering. So it seems that the control energy before calving is a pretty good deal for those cows. Now, one of the things that is very important is the high diet, and I've been talking about control energy. I mean, there is a whole webinar that you guys can go on Hordsman, uh, Hordsman, and they have a lot of things of Dr. Drakely talking about it, but I just want to give you the idea is that we are diluting the energy of that diet. And in our case here in the U.S., it's heavily based on corn silage. Perhaps in your country, in China, in Argentina, that could be the opposite thing. That could be add energy to make it, the cows get the energy they want. So it's not more than less. It's giving the cow what she needs. And in the US, like I said, if we add wheat straw, low energy to the diets, we become, we make the diet have this concentration here of energy. So what means that for the cow that she needs, let's say 15 mega cows per day, if she eats 25 pounds, she is okay. Now, if there is a huge uh, diet with a lot of energy, and again, 
This may be the diet that you guys have in your farm based on corn silage, letting cows eat whatever they want. This one, the cows can eat whatever they want, that the straw will limit the intake. This one, there's no straw to limit. They're going to eat more than what they need. And guess what? To get that energy that they need, the 15, if they only eat 20 pounds, they are done already. So what happens? They easily start consuming more energy. And if you guys want to think about it on that concept, it's just like this high-energy diet, you're feeding this baby here, okay? I don't do any commercials here, but this baby called Triple Whopper from Burger King, I have 1,250 calories just in the sandwich. So that means if my requirement is 2,000 calories per day, if I eat one of this and three cookies, I should be done by the day. However, I could be eating more salads or more chicken breasts and lean meat and all this stuff easier. So that's kind of the relationship. We don't want to feed a high energy content to those cows. So this is kind of the diet ingredients they look like. So we in a percentage of dry matter, so we, we end up adding, adding up a lot of the wheat straw. And to make sure that that's still eatable by the cow, that the dry matter doesn't get too high, we kind of have to add water to that. So here you can see that in, it ends up with a lower energy than the high energy diet. And one of the things that we believe it's happening when we are feeding those high energy diets before calving is that this is an experiment we fed a low energy or a high energy diet. We didn't see any differences in body condition score on those cows or even body weight, but look the difference, the difference on adipose tissue inside the belly of those cows. So the cows, even for 57 days, not a long period, so a dry period, if they eat this diet, they are going to end up with more adipose tissue inside, even though if we don't catch a difference in body condition score. And some of us can get associated where we already know that the perimeter of your belly can tell the, your chances of getting heart disease or something like that. So in a perspective, that was a 75% increase in the visceral adipose tissue. So that's why we think it's not a very good deal to give those diets with a higher energy component. This, and I want to highlight, this is how a control energy diet looks like. Sometimes we get called and they tell me that this is their high uh, control energy diet. So it's not just throwing a straw at the cows and let them figure out. That's not it all. So that's where it comes that the most, the biggest problem with this diet is sorting. So, for example, here. Okay, I have to interrupt okay. and switch over to sharing my screen. So just a second. Yeah, so you can see that the cows, they are moving their heads all sideways to sort their diet. And the cows in the right, they put their heads down and they are eating. So you can see easily there is sorting happening in the left and there is no sorting happening, happening when cows put their head down. You can do a pen stick box just when you feed the diet and after. You feed the diet and see the difference, if then there is a low difference or less than 15% difference in the pens, um, the seeds, then that would be okay. Um, and this is one of the ways that we figure out here. So we do have a, a hay, hay buster. So we pre-chop that straw 
and put it in a bin in the commodity shed, and then we get from there and put in the mixer. And that makes our TMR much better and much well mixed. So sorting is a big deal. It's not just throwing uh, or badly mixing the, the straw. So some of the recommendations, we talk about the energy. The other thing that I'd like to highlight for you guys is um, what we talk about crude protein, okay? So crude protein, just let's get back to that because I don't think it's the best item for us to identify or characterize this diet for dry cows, right? So this is our cow and crude protein is this number here that we are talking, but the same diet with the same crude protein can have different degradable protein versus undegradable protein that can have different amounts of amino acids that are soluble. This is gonna be the microbial protein. And what we really wanna know is what is the metabolizable protein that is getting into the intestine of the cow and that's what she's gonna be using. And I can even charge and challenge that, okay, what is the profile of amino acids on that metabolizable protein uh, that we have? So that's why we cannot make diets for cows in an Excel sheet. We need a model that is gonna tell me, okay, how much microbial protein is this diet producing based on all the things that I'm feeding this cow, right? What is the degradable versus undegradable protein? So what I wanna talk to you guys about is that really looking at what is the amount of metabolizable protein? And again, grams per day, that's what cows eat. Percentage, sometimes they don't, they don't like that, right? We need to know how many grams per day we are feeding of that. Feeding a high crude protein diet is not a good idea. And one of the things we, uh, when we look at the reproduction side of things is that this experiment, for example, they look at the urine pH, right? And they get a heifer and they infuse with saline. So it's pretty much water, let's say, okay. And they saw that the pH in the uterus didn't change, neither the, P, the plasma urea nitrogen. Now, when they add urea, you can see that, of course, the nitrogen in, in blood goes up as expected. That's related to, okay, what happens if I feed a lot of protein to my cow? The plasma urea nitrogen or the mucurea nitrogen is going to go up and the pH in the uterus goes, goes down. So that's one of the reasons why feeding a lot of protein is not a good deal for cows. And again, we suggest you feeding more than 1,200 grams per day of metabolizable protein and make sure that your software that you're using give you an assessment of the two main limiting amino acids in dairy cows. There are methionine and lysine. So we know that if we supplement rumen protected lysine and methionine to cows, they're gonna produce more milk, they're gonna produce more protein, and sometimes they're gonna produce more fat. So more milk components with rumen protected amino acids, methionine and lysine, we know that already. Now, what we wanna know is that if I feed more methionine or the methionine that the cow needs, am I gonna get lower embryonic deaths? Why we thought about that? This is a very nice paper, okay? So they're trying to develop rat embryos and they are changing the media where these embryos are being grown, like fertilization in vitro, for example, in vitro fertilization. 
So we have here, they have the calcium as the base. If they put anything on the calcium, so none, they're going to have this much growth of embryo, so embryo protein, and all of them are going to be abnormal. Now, if I add amino acids and vitamins, the embryo grows more, more protein, and zero of them are percent are abnormal. If I do amino acids, again, same thing. If I do vitamins, oops, we went backwards. All the embryos have problems. If I give amino acids without methionine, same thing. Everybody has a problem. So what happens is that if I feed methionine, if I put methionine in that media, all the embryos, they grew well. So that's the point that we want to verify that because that's happening in this uh, red experiment. Every time I have methionine, I have good growth of the embryo. So we want to have an assessment on the follicles of cows and also in the embryo when cows were fed. So this experiment here is 72 cows. Okay, they were milked three times a day. We had a pre-calving diet, close up, a fresh cow diet, zero to 30 days, and then a high cow diet, 31 to 72. We had four treatments, methionine, choline, both of them are control. And I'm going to focus today on the methionine versus the control. That's the ones we saw the difference. We didn't see differences with the other one. So this is the diet, pre-fresh, fresh and high, uh, very common Midwestern diet. So for our region here in the U.S., a very common diet. This is how things uh, analyze. So you can see low to medium starch, okay, nothing very special here. And as expected, the cows, they produce, with the methionine, they produce more protein and they produce more milk yield. So that's expected. They also ate more, so dry matter intake before calving and after calving was higher for the cows that were consuming methionine. And I think that's a really reflection of cows getting what they need, they perform better. So I'm not, we even talk about supplementation and I have that, but that's not. We are giving the cow what she needs. There is a requirement for methionine and I'm fulfilling that requirement. So. One thing that we need to always think about it is what describes this, you know, for our most used encyclopedia today, encyclopedia today, that is Wikipedia, right? All the students, when you ask something, that's where they go for. What is describing this? And this is one word that is called efficiency, and it's different than being effective, okay? I think we are very effective in telling farmers to record a bunch of data, but I don't think we are very efficient in giving back or making sure those numbers are used in actions so the farm really can get some uh, benefits from it. And it's pretty much, okay, I'm giving this to the cow. Is she giving me back or not? And that's a matter of that. So most of the time, oh, things are too expensive. I think it's expensive if you do something and you don't see return. We should be looking at the return over investment or are we being more efficient? So I want to show this video here. And okay, I'm not sure I have to do it, yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, so what's happening there is that the girl agrees to play the game, so it's very effective in getting the other one to play. However, 
one of the things that she doesn't do is explain well how to do it. And actually, she was supposed to fall to the back, not to the front. So I feel sometimes that they tell farmers to do a lot of things, but if they don't see the benefit out of this, why they're measuring that? Why you're asking them to do a lot of things? So pinpoint things, intake, body condition score change. Are you feeding the right amino acids to the cow or not? Those are the things that I think we should be measuring. So here's a paper I'm going to talk about. Like I said, there's a lot of information here. I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you the most important thing out of it. But the stats, numbers, everything is in there. What we did was we followed, so we had 80 cows in the trial. Half of those, we followed them on day seven, okay? And every two days, we were able to measure the growth of the follicle. But when those follicles and half of them got to 16 millimeters, and that's kind of the average of the ovulation for a hosting, we aspirated. We put a needle over there, and we were able to aspirate that follicle. And one of the things that we were able to measure is the amount of amino acids on that fluid. And we saw that, yes, methionine is higher in concentration. So the follicular fluid, that's what we saw. So if we feed methionine to the cows, guess what? Uh, the first uh, follicular uh, wave, so we were following that. If we aspirate, there's more methionine there. No difference in lysine. Tendency for histidine in here, so that's a different topic. But when we provide the first limiting amino acid, the second one may appear. And here is something that I wish we could do very often in in, um, in all farms. But we collected blood samples, and you can see that cows that were supplemented with methionine, they had more methionine concentration in blood. And I think that's bottom line. If you guys are feeding a rumen protected source of methionine you should have more. But I also, what, how much is more? Let's say they need to have more than 20, so you know they are getting the benefits. But I think that on average, cows here in our environment, if we are not supplementing for or providing methionine, cows are short on that, especially cows that are over uh, 35 or 40 kilos uh, of milk per day, like me, 80, 90 pounds, that's for sure. Uh, some assessment on uterine health, so we were able to put that little uh, brush inside the body of the uterus, and one thing that we saw, we can make a slide and count the, the number of white blood cells, so that's the PMNs for polymorphic nuclear, so those cells, they're related to endometritis, and one of the things that we saw was at 15 days, cows that ate, were eating methionine, they had a higher PMN. However, at 72 days, the cows with methionine, they had lower PMN. And that's my point that I think we need to do a better job talking about is that inflammation. I think inflammation can be good and can be bad. I think after calving, 50 days after calving, as much as I can clean my cow or that she can defend herself to clean, placenta and everything else, that's good. Now, I don't want a bunch of white blood cells when it's time for me to breed that cow. So I think that change is very important. And actually, in 2014, Steve LeBlanc from the University of Guelph, he did a pretty nice article uh, in a, a fertility conference that we, that we had in Ireland. And he talks about a model, and he tells that, hey, the healthy cows are the ones that can defend. So he's talking about inflammation. But they can defend themselves or clean themselves 
early, but then after week three postpartum, they are able to reduce. And the cows that are sick, they either don't respond at all because they are just not getting enough feed or they're not right, or they keep responding high the whole time. So I really think it's interesting. There's higher response early lactation, so cows can be with lower PMNs at the time of breeding. The other thing is that when we collect blood from these cows, they have a the cows with methionine, they have a better ability, the neutrophils, the defense cells, white blood cells, to grab bacteria, but not just grab. When they grab it, they are able to kill more as well. That's what we do with this oxidative burst, the capacity of whenever the bacteria is in, to kill it. So it grabs more in the whole body of the cow. And again, not magic, just cows being fed the requirements, what they need. How about the embryos? We also superovulated, synchronized those cows, and at 72 days, we collected the embryos. I'll explain there. And we saw that the cows, okay, that had the methionine, they had more lipid in the embryo compared to control. I'm not saying that the embryos were fat. They had more lipids, and that's what this little picture is showing, than the control. We collaborate here with uh, uh, Peter Hansen, uh, in Florida, and now Emma Denicoli and UC Davis, they were able to do this work for us. And that's what we found. Now, putting that in a perspective, I'm going to show you here the last uh, group of information. Uh, that's a research done by uh, Milo's group, a very nice paper in a plus one that is available. They fed methionine from day 30 to 128. So pretty much protected methionine or not. Okay, lots of work. Tell them, Commercial farm, top dressing, making sure all the cows are eating, a huge amount of work here. I really commend the, the researchers for this, but that's the point. Rooming protecting methionine or not, top dressed. And lots of cows, 300 cows, right? They had uh, primiparous and multiparous cows as well. And the main thing that I want to show to you, when they checked pregnancy at 21 day, 28 days and then check again at 61, you can see that the primipares, there was no difference in embryonic loss. However, in pregnancy losses, now look at this. 19% for the multiparous in control versus only 6% in methionine. Again, the 19 is not a huge number. Remember we said, hey, 15, that's happening. 10 to 20, that's happening. Why is that? So some of the thoughts, some of the things they were able to do is that this is an image of the uterus with the embryo here they were able to measure all that volume, okay? And guess what? No difference in primiparous, but there is a statistical difference in the multiparous. The cows that had the methionine, the embryo was larger than the embryos from cows in control. So remember, so by giving, providing what the cow needs, that was the methionine, the embryo was able to grow, and perhaps, a larger embryo was able to produce more interferon tau and tell the cow, hey, remember, I'm here. Please don't cycle again. And maybe that's why they kept more the pregnancies. And I think the extra lipid, perhaps, that we saw in our work at seven days in a blastocyst, that can help, perhaps, the embryo, the lipid, as a source of energy. But we are looking more into what types of lipids and everything else, so we can kind of conclude on that. So. In conclusion, we saw this effect on the follicle and the embryo, 
we saw in the pregnancy, but now we still have a lot to learn about, okay, what's going to happen with that heifer calf when touched the ground? Is she going to be producing more milk or not? We already have some other research showing that there's a difference in gene expression in placenta when we feed methionine, and the calves are heavier from dams that were fed methionine. So it's a lot of good information, and again, we can have another webinar one day just talking about amino acids, and then we can narrow down to that in another opportunity. So remember, dry matter intake, that's the fight you want to pick. It's going to solve not just your transition cup problems, but a lot of other problems and help your nutritionist a lot to fine tune your diet. Uh, things that we, when we provide the amino acids that the cows require, that we are going to have success, not just on the transition period, but we're going to have success on that cow getting pregnant as well. Uh, we saw effects on the follicle. We saw effects on the embryo that shows that, us that. And here is some of the numbers that I'm talking about. Well, how much, you know, crude protein, even though I don't care about this much, I think you guys should focus on metabolizable protein. But this is what I think metabolizable methionine and lysine that you guys should be at, at this, oh, sorry, at this much. Here, I'm putting how much we fed of the product. So if you ask, hey, Phil, how much did you feed of that? Okay, 15 grams in the dry period and 20 grams per day of the product uh, to those cows. We also fed a little bit of rumen-protected lysine. Um, we use Agipro here and Smart Amine M, if you guys ask. Uh, this is how much we fed and this is how much I think you guys should be. So we are counting on some of that coming from uh, soybean meal, from blood meal and everything else. And also, make sure you balance the ratio of those two amino acids and also match with energy. If you just increase or provide the amino acid without making sure you are providing the energy in the diet, that's going to be a bad idea. Cows are going to get thin. They're going to produce more milk, but you, you're going to, so make sure your software can give you that. Okay. Uh, and pregnancy rate, we have lots of herds with 30% preg rate. So I think nowadays, 20% is a number, and embryonic death. If you don't know, nutritionists or vet, I don't care. I think those are basic numbers that we should be following every month of our farms or every 21 days so we make sure that things are going okay. So with that, I would like to thank you guys again and I'd be more than open for questions if we still have time. Uh, I really enjoyed your talk, Phil. Thanks a lot. If you in the audience have questions, please don't hesitate to ask and go ahead and write them either in the question and answer window or the chat window, and I will field them. That way we don't have to worry about whether your communication will work. We will alternate questions from our English language web webinar with those of the hosting country. Join us next month as we're, we are joined by Dr. Gordy Jones from Central Sands Dairy in Wisconsin. Gordy received his DVM from Michigan State University and spent 15 years in veterinary practice focused on dairy. He has since served as a nutritionist facility cow comfort consultant, worked in consulting for Monsanto, helped design and manage Fair Oaks Dairy of 20,000 cows, and he now ma manages his own dairy. And dear to my heart, it seems to be well-populated with jerseys. Gordy has a very applied talk 
and he will address cow management and feeding with an eye towards achieving excellence in both production and cow health. Having just finished our mini unit on transition cows, we are moving to a series that will address animal behavior and comfort. Dr. Jones's talk will be complemented by Dr. Marcia Endress in July. She's going to talk about robotics. That should be very interesting. And Trevor DeVries in September. He's going to address cow behavior. This month, we launched The Beef Nutritionist, a new webinar series based on The Nutritionist with a focus on beef cattle. This season, we'll have an abbreviated year with only five presentations. Our first was this afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time with Dr. Ale Relling from The Ohio State University on fetal programming. Many of you joined us for that. Our next webinar in The Beef Nutritionist is June 13th with Dr. Alfredo Di Costanzo from the University of Minnesota on backgrounding. And finally, we want to, I want to thank my co-hosts, um, AMTS USA and Global. My bosses helped make this possible for us to do this. Um, Paula Torillo in Argentina, and we're going to put a special thank you to Rock River Laboratory for sponsoring The Nutritionist, and Tom Long from Hemingway in China. We are very thankful to our generous sponsors of the English Language Webinar Series. They are Ajinomoto Heartland, is superior nutrition through amino acids, makers of AgiPro-L, and Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy cattle health. Our silver sponsors are Dairyland Laboratories, Virtus, makers of strata with EPA, DHA, omega-3s, and Prequil with omega-6s, Cumberland Valley Analytical Services, Kemen, featuring USA lysine, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, R&D Life Scientists, and AB Vista. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Purdue Agribusiness, Jeffo, Quality Liquid Feeds, Adiseo, Origination Inc., and Novita, makers of Novomia. The floor up to questions. I see that I have some questions in the chat window and the question and answer window, and I know that Paula has some questions too. So I'll go ahead and lead with a couple, and then I'll turn it over to Paula. So um, Dr. Cardoso, your break is over. I'm unmuting you. And I'm going to give presentation back to you in case you need to go back to any slides. Okay. Okay. All right. So the first question I'm going to lead with is from um, Andrea Bellingeri. And he says, in the last year in Italy, 
Many nutritionists suggest a single group dry cow based on ad libitum hay and provide a solid sugar cube based mainly on molasses and minerals. Um, and I'm pretty sure I saw one of those when I was in Italy uh, a couple of years ago. What do you think about that? So I think I will break down, if I can, if I may, in some of the components of the question. So, for example, having one dry group, we have some research on far off, close up, or one dry group, and it seems that one dry group, group works just fine. So we were using around 40 days uh, uh, or at least 30 days. It depends on a lot of the management, but one dry group in a control energy diet, uh, it's fine, works well. Uh, now, the hay, I'm assuming that hay is chopped and mixed with the TMR. So if you're just throwing the hay, I would not be comfortable on the cows going for that. It's the same thing you tell everyone and your kids, hey, eat your vegetables. It's kind of, I'm not sure cows are going to be searching for that if they can. And I think the solid, solid sugar cube, you know, sometimes it's, uh, yeah, like molasses with the minerals. Uh, that's a fine strategy to supply that uh, mineral, but I wouldn't count on that being a problem on the energy side of things. Uh, and I think that's my consideration. I think that's a good good management strategy for providing those, especially trace minerals for cows in that form. They do that in, on pasture as well, I've seen it. So no big deal on, on that side of things, that's fine. But on the bunk, make sure that the cows are getting the hay in a way that is mixed, probably chopped with the whole corn silage or other side of diet. So make sure the cows eat the now. I think uh, I just, so uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I think Andrea will probably address it in um, an addendum to his chat, but the farm that I saw it on was in the Parma region where they're not feeding any ensiled feeds. So the dry cows are, I believe, strictly on hay and then to that is this rather massive um, combination block that I think he's des describing. Yes, he says they just put out long hay and the big cubes. And I'm going to say the cube was probably about four feet by four feet. Yeah. So my my suggestion, uh, if that's the only thing they have, that's the hay, and they are consuming this first, have an idea on how much they're eating, right? And you have an idea on how much they're consuming on that cube that I'm assuming then is just not molasses. It has other uh, energy sources there. I and actually grabbed a tag, but I, I would not be able to dig that out real fast right yeah. now. And you know the weight of the cube, throw it there. After a week, how much you have left over, divide by the numbers of cows you have there, and try to get an assessment on how much of that hay they are eating and figure out how much energy you think they're eating. Yeah, and if Andrea that's around has, what the cow needs between yeah. 15, 16. He has some real. It, it sounds like he has some real concerns about this. Um, so yeah, that, that's it's interesting. If I can, if while Paul is asking questions and I can dig around in my pictures, I'll see if I can come up with um, a picture of this block. Uh, the second question that I'm going to ask is um, from Bernardo. Menachetti, and he says, assuming that we are feeding an energy-restricted diet during the far-off period, for example, 1.3 megacals per kilogram, do you see any advantage 
to feed a stepped-up diet during the close-up period, for example, 1.45 megacals per kilogram, or just feed restricted energy diet, 1.3 megacals per kilogram, for the whole dry period? If so, how much energy should this diet have? Okay, good question. And uh, so our perspective and everything we've uh, done here on the research side of things and uh, some of the farms that we follow up. And again, next month when Gordy Jones talks about it, he's going to talk about it again. He's going to call the Goldilocks diet. So, you know, uh, but we've been feeding one group and a control energy diet the whole time without stepping up and making sure, again, cows are not sorting, that they are eating enough of that mixture. That's no problem. So I don't see or we don't see any advantage in doing the step up, right? So you could stay at 130 the whole time, no big deal. One thing that I want to highlight, though, in the step up, we thought in the past or there was some indication on, okay, we need to bring energy a little bit up. But I think there is a concern that we need to be feeding things that are similar before calving and after calving. So if we are doing our 130, usually going to be at starch levels, that's going to be between 13 to 16, for example, okay? 14 to 16% of dry matter of starch. That's going to be your diet before calving. I would not recommend you to have the fresh cow diets to be at 30% starch. So your, diff, your switch in fiber terms and in energy terms cannot be huge. So that's kind of one of the things. Now, some people, they're doing a two-week where they go at 22 starch and then they jump at 30. But usually the farms that have been more successful, they have the ability to feed a fresh cow diet for two to three or two to four weeks, depends on amount of calving, size of the pan. But they are able to limit that and make that transition a, a little bit better. And then they go to higher. Now, if your diets have 20 22% starch the whole time, then I would not be worried about it. So, yeah, yeah I don't see the need to go to 145. I, would, I see it working at 130. Uh, make sure your cows have the intake, that they are eat what you think they're going to eat. Like I said, sorting is a big problem. Make sure it's not too dry that cows are eating, so you may have to add water. Some people add whey, so that gets a little bit more in a specific case, yeah. Okay, thank you. I'm going to ask Paula to ask some questions from the Argentinian side. Go ahead, Paula. Hi, Phil. Thank you Hello. for the presentation. It was great. Thank you very much. I have a lot of questions here from Argentina. So I will begin with two questions from Pedro. He, he wants to know how was the performance regarding milk yield of cows with embryolosis, and which was the voluntary waiting period of cows in, in that research? Uh, okay, very good questions. And some of those I would have to go back to the paper. So there is, in that case, in that commercial farm, remember they fed from 30 days to 128 days, uh, they didn't see differences in a, in a milk yield in that period. And the voluntary waiting period, I don't recall. But, uh, I mean, it was the same between those two, okay? 
And um, and I really appreciate the question because uh, when we talk about preg rates and everything else, uh, we need to make sure that when we compare farmers that they are using or we are assuming they, they have the same voluntary rate period because your preg rates, the numbers can be totally off just by your selection of the software, right? But Pedro can send me an email or I can send to you, to you guys, the plus one paper, and then that has the whole description on the embryonic death side of things. Okay, Paula, why don't you keep going for a couple? Yes, uh, there is another question from Pedro. Uh, would you suggest methionine supplementation to increase conception rate? Wow, so here you go. And again, supplementation, I try not to use that word, even though I notice I put in my slides, so that's not, doesn't help. But the point is, you know, if Pedro is feeding cows in Argentina, what is the production? Then he's gonna put that in AMTS, and then AMTS is gonna show him, hey, my friend, you are short this many grams in, uh, in methionine, right? Based on CNCPS and Cornell biology, that's what's going on. And uh, if I do that in farmers here in the Midwest, that's very clear. So I know that we are short. So what I'm doing is just supplying that methionine for the requirement of the cow. That's it. And in our case, it's 20 grams per day. So I think that's needed for the follicle to develop. And for ovulation, I didn't show some of the data, but we actually were able to see some of those cells inside the follicle and do some gene expression, and you can see that some of those genes are expressed different. So if I provide the methionine, that is a nutrient, amino acid that the cow needs, she's able to express more some of the genes related with the estrogen pathway. Uh, so that's one thing. Then we see this difference in the, the lipids. So yes, I think especially during the transition period and until we get those cows pregnant at 70, 80 days or 100 days in milk, I think it's very important to feed what you need. But now, if your cows are producing 10 kilos, 20 pounds per day, then plugging in the softer, probably you should be able to feed enough with soybean meal and corn. But in our case here, 90 pounds of milk or 80 pounds or 70 pounds, that's not the case. We see something uh, missing. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a whole... Um, involvement of those amino acids, specifically methionine, that we know more about it on reproduction. Like I said, in another trial with even a different product, but as a protected methionine, we were able to collect the placenta that was coming out of the cows, and we did gene expression, and guess what? There is a difference, especially in the nutrient transport in the caruncular region, that there is more nutrients coming from the mom to the, to the calf and that's why they are heavier. So there's a whole, hey, the embryo is different. Hey, embryonic death is different. Hey, the placenta is different. Hey, the calf is being born with more weight. And I think soon we're going to be able to follow those animals and see, hey, guess what? They produce more milk than cows from dams that didn't have the methionine. And I think it's not, not magic. It's just giving what the cow is required to. So I think that was a long story, but hopefully give some perspective. Yes, uh, great. And re regarding your answer, uh, do you think we, we have a, a good indicator at, uh, about methionine level 
eh, in caos, in, in our caos? Muy buena pregunta. Me gusta mucho esta pregunta. Que gustaría de tener una respuesta clara con una mostra. Sí. Oh, I think, oh, you're recording. I may have an answer in English, right? Just to make sure we record and everybody can understand. So, yes, please. Okay, 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 okay. Got it, got it. I got excited a little bit. That's fine. Coming back to English. The, the, you know, the most, you know, uh, easy way for us in research is we collect blood samples and we see what is the concentration. That's the bottom line. If I'm feeding something, it needs to show up in, in blood. However, for us here, it costs $100 each sample. So it's very expensive. So in the field, the recommendation that I have is, for example, if we are talking about hostings, right? If I'm feeding hostings the right way, they should be expressing through their milk the pretty much the average of the breed. So for example, if your herd has milk protein of 2.9, and we know that the average of the breed here in the US is 3.2, I think it's already an indication that bottom line, you are shorting protein. Most likely, it's gonna be the two main limiting amino acids, methionine or lysine. So right there, I think is the first indication that you are shorting methionine. Doesn't matter if you have 20 crude protein. If you don't have methionine, that cow will be in 2.9. Uh, now we're getting a little bit of more of the hot weather here, but our farm at the University of Illinois, uh, we had milk samples of hosting cows at 3.5, true protein, right? So if you guys down there analyze crude protein, uh, you can add two more decimal points. So my 3.5 would be your 3.7 in hostings because we feed for amino acids in a 16% crude protein diet. So I think that's where the software comes very handy is that you can play that. Hey, how about we go from 18 to 16% crude protein, but we add this amino acid here. And you're gonna see that even the economics is gonna start working and you're gonna be feeding well. So bottom line, if you have the 100 bucks and you pull a bunch of cow's blood and then you figure out, that's fine, but First indication would be uh, if your cows are producing the average amount of new protein. And I think that's the first one. Um, and I know there are people that are trying to develop uh, cheaper ways of doing that or even some enzymatic tests on milk, but I don't think that's ready available yet. But so far would be putting your diets uh, on a software, see what's going on. If the software is telling you you're short, probably you are short. If your cows are telling you you're short by not having a lot of, of the average milk protein, probably you're short. So a good indication to start feeding the rumen protected methionine. Thank you. I'm gonna take a turn while Paula gathers up. She has lots of questions. Um, first of all, I have a picture to share. Oh, look at this. So this is the, I believe this is the block that he's talking about. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> so one, one of the things that come to mind here is that, you know, you really don't want to overcrowd, but so that wagon that is in the corner there is just feeding the hay, right? No grain at all. Um, well, dry cows, I believe, I believe they were only getting hay. Maybe Andrea will say. The wagon is used for the lactating ration. So 
So yeah, and I'm cool. pretty sure I took a picture. This is a group of um, dry cows on a big bedded pack. Mm-hmm. So you definitely don't want to overcrowd and have cows fighting over that block, right? Uh, I'm not sure what is his experience on how many blocks per number of cows to avoid that, but I'll be a little bit nervous about that. But I'll just, you know, first thing I'll be curious to is that how fast is that block disappearing? So I don't know, he has 15 cows over there. In one week, how much of that block disappears? And just wait, when you put it, wait after a week or two, divide by the number of the cows, see how much of that hay is disappearing, and he can tell me how much energy those cows are eating. Put in a concern that if you mix mature cows of first lactating, probably one is going to beat the other one. So again, overcrowding here may be a big, big thing. And if these cows are behaving pretty good, that they have no retained placenta, no DAs, nothing after calving, why move, right? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what that group looked like. And I think they were a little bit on the... Um, heavy body condition score side, mm-hmm. but I can't remember. This was two years ago. Yeah, but but it seems to me that it's kind of uh, there's a lot of room for competition between cows there that could make that don't work. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it seems they would be too short on energy, to be honest. But uh, you'd have to. Yeah. Okay. So um, moving away from that, I have a question from um, Sami Esadawe. And he is saying, and I'll, this may take me a few times to get through because it's a fairly long question and I have a little window. Um, we are dividing dry cows into two groups, dry and close up, and we adjusted the dry cow ration on to about 1.4 megacals per kilogram dry matter, crude protein 14%. The close up ration is 15.5% um, crude protein. And they're using amino acid supplemented, supplemented lysine adjusted to adjusted on 6.5% of MP. I don't know if you can see this. Um, it might be easier if I share it to your chat window so that you can get all these numbers when well, I get I'm through. Well, I'm taking notes here, so okay. you're good. All right, good. The balance is about 100%, 110% of the requirements. The methionine is about 2.3% of the MP, about 20 grams balance along with protected choline. Um, The results on cattle performance is very good on all sides, um, production, reproduction, and immunity. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's it's perfect, especially he's balancing for amino acids, you know, um, and one, three, one, four, that's good for me. Okay. And uh, I would just try to remember that that energy needs to be correlated with our big fight. Remember, that is the intake. So if your cows, they eat a little bit less than what I think, then I may need 1.4. If I know that they can eat a little bit more, I may need 1.3. So it's kind of the fine-tuned, but I'm happy that you are not at 1.6, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that could be limited and then involves um, um um, comfort, you know, how much your cows can eat. We, you know, that changes a lot, how many fans you have, what type of bedding you're using. So uh, I think if things are working, and I mean, if you have the opportunity to do choline, I think there was a little bit of confusion in the, in the field on uh, choline and methionine being the same. I think they're very different, and I think there's room for both in the diet. So 
I think that seems to be a pretty good diet. Okay, terrific. This is a question from Bernardo Mendicetti. What would be the recommendation to producers regarding the goal body condition score of cows at calving? Besides providing so, an average, oh, there's more, there's more. Besides providing an average body condition score, should we also recommend a measure of variation on the body condition score of cows within the close-up pen? For example, having less than 20% of the cows with a body condition score of greater than 3.5 or less than 3.0. So that's an, uh, it's a good question because I can kind of uh, reinforce my topic. My challenge and kind of teasing to you guys was that I don't care the body condition score you have in the close-up pen. And you could do the same thing. Get your cows 20, 30% of that pen. What is the body condition score? But go to the fresh pen, right? And tell me what is the body condition score and tell me what is the change. And just focus on the change because if your cows are at three in the close-up pen and then they go to two, five, and then when you're drying, they are at three, I'm happy with you. You are doing a 0.5 difference. Now, if you go three, five in the close-up pen, your cows cannot go below three. And that's, at least here in the U.S., my reality is that cows go to 225, 25, depending, because there's a lot of push for those cows genetically to produce milk. So I don't want to go 3.5 in the close-up because I know they're going to drop to 2.5. So I'd rather have 20% of the cows or all the cows. That's more on a strategy of um, how many cows you have and how much labor you have to help you with that. But let's say the strategy you're talking about, 30% of the cows at 3 body condition score close up and if you have 30% of your cows in the fresh pen at 2.5 that's fine that's a 0.5 difference and I think if you start following that it's going to be more um, relevant than just what is the body condition score at the close up pen but try to look at the difference and if you shoot for 0.5 it's good but you're going to see that you're going to be at 0.25 or sometimes of the year you may be at 1 and then, like I said, there's a whole body of literature talking about how that difference in body condition score from dry to lactating or even within lactation affect hoof health and reproduction and health of cows. So try to look at those differences and then you target because some cows, sorry, some farms, they have more ability to provide energy to cows. Some farms they're going to have more ability to provide protein. I'm talking better forage, worse forage. More access to corn, lower access to corn. Uh, no access to corn, you know. So that's where the difference comes on, on trying to make a recommendations for body condition score and the numbers fails because of that. I can put body weight pretty easy here in the U.S. with corn at $3 a bushel. That's not the same in Europe. And I have blood meal, a source of rumen degradable protein, back in Brazil and Europe, you don't have that opportunity. So you have to play with the nutritionist on that point. But bottom line, what is the change? Okay, thank you. I have a question from um, Tom Long for the Chinese audience. And he asks, and, and I don't know if you will know this, is the methionine supplement available in China? Hmm, that's a good point. I don't know. I know it's available in... Uh, no, I'm pretty sure yes, because this product that we're talking about, actually, one of the plants is in China. 
Uh, it's Martamin from Edisil. So I'm. Okay, I am going to see if Paula is ready to ask. I know she has lots of questions. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I'm here. Uh, I have a question from Carlo. Can you make some comments about the milk curve of cows? Oh, I mean, milk uh, yield of cows with low body condition score at calving. Mm. So, let's see if I understand the question. So, low body condition score at calving, and comments on milk yield. So, at one of the things is that those cows in that research, what happened is that they, those cows produce more milk than the cows that were losing body condition score. So they were thin, they were gaining body condition score, they were producing more milk, and they were eating more. So they could get to that average body condition score at 14 to 16 weeks after calving. So that's what was going on. So it's pretty much an adjustment of the cow to get to that average body condition score. And that's what I'm saying. If in our genetics, that average may be 275. 20 years ago, that average was 3.5. So that's why we had in our mind, oh, I need to drive my cow at 3.5. Then she goes to 3 and she goes back to 3.5. Nowadays, she's going to go to 2.5, 2.75 because we put more genetics and more efforts in that new production. So th that's my perspective. But we don't want to go to 1.5 because then that's the slide I showed. That cow is catabolized on protein from muscle, and that, that's not good as well. So probably the cows, if they are too thin, we should be adding more protein than what is our requirement. Again, uh, and from a research side of things, we get very limited because most of our trials, we do, you know, cows that are on average in body condition score, we have very few trials or information on, okay, this is all fat cows, this is all very thin cows. Um, so we kind of get limited to that, but uh, I think that's kind of the the answer that the cow is going to be eating more because she needs to get to that body condition score and she's going to produce more milk. But then you always have to ask at what cost. And probably if she's too thin, it's going to be her muscle, and that may get to some of other problems. Okay, great. Uh, a question from William. Would you recommend the use of rumen-protected fat in fresh cows? And if so, what would be the right source of rumen-protected fat? And what about the fatty acid profile? I see. I think there's like a, a so rumen-protected fat, and actually that trial when. Where we talk about the control energy diet, actually the original idea was to research rumen protected fat in the transition period, in the dry period for cows. And I think there is a lot of uh, 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 results out there that could tell both things that is good or that is bad. Uh, one thing that we have to agree is that there is not a push for more energy, so cows can easily eat their energy before calving. Uh, so I don't see that happening. A lot of research pointing out to really um, rumen protected fat in the dry period uh, is really important for that cow. So you find research both ways. Fresh cow, then again, I think it comes back to what is your ability to provide energy for that cow. 
And then I think it's a pretty good strategy sometimes in summer months when intakes are lower. So I think there is a use for that. And I think now we are trying to understand a little bit more on the type of the fatty acids that you're feeding. And then it comes back from, you know, are we feeding estearic acids? Are we feeding palmitic acids? And what are the effects on the cow and the butter fat? So I would say that a mixture of those two seem to be very interesting not just one or the other, but a mixture of those. But I think we still need to learn a little bit more on what's going on in the milk and how is that related to the metabolism of the cow. Because some of the things we've been learning is that the adipose tissue has a pretty important role on inflammation in the cow. And it seems like some of those sources, they may be uh, causing some of those effects as well in an inflammation system of the cow. So. I think at this point, if we can have a product with a little bit of both, that would be kind of interesting. But again, especially after calving, I think that would be uh, a good strategy, but also depends on types of energy that the farm can have after calving. Okay. And going on with William, uh, he wants to know if you recommend the use of urea in the fresh cow? And if not, why not? I mean, I think uh, the urea, right, I think that needs to be related. One of the things is with uh, energy, right? So we are expecting that my, uh, microbes in the rumen are going to use that nitrogen source to provide microbial protein, so that's a good idea. However, if there is not enough energy provided to those microbes in the rumen, that's not going to happen, right? So one of the ways to balance that is mucury and nitrogen and see where you are at. I think uh, and your software can give you that very nicely, and I'm used to using AMTS on how much of rumen degradable protein you have as percentage of that um, diet of the dry matter. And my field recommendation, I don't like to go over 10%. So if your sources are already more than 10% of RDP, I would not use urea. So my concerns are more about how to use it than use it or not. We use here in the U.S. in some of the diets, and that's totally fine. But we really make sure, for example, that the percentage of RDP of the dry matter is not more than 10%. We may bring use urea to bring to that 10% or close to that. And uh, another very, very practical thing, again, there is nothing related to that, but uh, when I have on my diet my soluble fiber, it can, I can get, for example, from soybean holes and all those kind of things, and I add my starch and I add my sugar, and if I add those, I would like to have more than 40%. So if I have... Um, 10% soluble fiber, 20% starch, I would like to have 10% sugar in my diet. So usually what's going to happen, you're going to have 25% starch, 10% soluble fiber, and then you have 5% sugar, you get to your 40%. That's telling me, or it's a good indication for me on the field, that I have enough energy for those birds to use my urea. So... I'm not sure if I complicated more than I answered the question, but uh, hopefully 
that covered it a little bit. Okay, I have a question for from um, Tom Long, and I think he he asked this in sort of relative terms. For dry cows, what weight should um, we maintain? And we know that cows vary quite a bit in weight, but maybe relative to what what would be considered uh, fighting weight. And for um, oat hay, how much can you use in dry cow feeding? Okay, so during the dry period, uh, ideally, the recommendation would be we don't want cows to change weight. So whatever you dry your cow, she should stay like that throughout the whole dry period. That should be the idea. Um, so the how much, what the weight should we maintain? The one that the cow provides a good body condition score for your farm. So let's say if his body condition score three, the weight that she has there, because again, like you've mentioned, and you know, the frame can vary, but body condition score gives us an idea of that weight plus if it is a good adipose tissue coverage or not in the cow. So I would say the weight that the cow doesn't change during the dry period. And old hay, uh, is that right? Old, old hay, how much can you use for dry cows? Then it's a matter of figure out, putting that in the software, putting that in AMTS, and remember to check the potassium levels, right? You want to make sure your cows are right in energy, but they're also not too far from being a low potassium diet. So you can use old hay, no big deal. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You can use alfalfa hay. You just need to make sure that calcium potassium is not going to give you a big trouble over there. All right. Paula, go ahead. Yes. Uh, Phil, uh, Luis uh, wants some comments on choline use, if you can. Sure. So um, um, choline and rumen-protected choline, right, uh, it's being used especially, you know, in that fat cow type of situation. Um, and I think we've, we have been learning more and more about it. Um, we don't have a requirement at this point. I mean, we are writing again, or sorry, not again, but the new uh, NRC for, for dairy cows is coming up this year, hopefully. So the last one we have is 2001, and we have no clear definition of a requirement for choline, but we understand the whole of choline and choline, and how does that help the cow to really export that fat out of the liver. So all that transition from a high body condition score or lower body condition score, choline would be able to to help with that. So I think it's a, it's a, product that I think we're going to learn more and more. I think there's some whole role in uh, methylation that we need to do more work on, but that's very more on the basic side of things. But I think definitely if farms experience uh, any changes in body condition score more than what we talk about here, 0 0.5, 0 0.75, and if they can, they should be feeding uh, rumen protective methionine, especially during the transition, uh, sorry, choline, especially during the transition period. Great. And the last one from Pedro. D did you measure progesterone in the embryo loss research? 
Yeah, so that, uh, yeah, that information I would have to look in the paper. So I can send Pedro the paper. And again, that's not, that was the research done by, um, by, by Milo's group in Wisconsin. And then I'm pretty sure they measured that and it's in the paper. And I have another one. Uh, when you look at body condition score, what do you see? I mean, you work, you're working with a herd, so uh, do you look at total variation in the herd, or what do you look at? So what I look at, I think it's, and that's kind of, I suggested three points. So if I go today at the farm, I'm going to see the cows that are drying off. I'm going to see the cows that are um, calving, and I'm going to see the cows that are uh drying off so no breeding so you tell me okay this i'm breeding these cows and i go there and i'm gonna see body condition score for those cows and then i'll see those three groups of cows in your farm and i'm gonna do the math one how is the body condition score and then i'll keep that keep doing that every month or every two weeks that i go to your farm i'm gonna keep that in mind and we see how it goes. So usually if your cows at dry off have on average three five and in the fresh pen they have two five, I know there is some opportunity. Either your cows are too fat or they are too thin. So that's kind of the approach that we do. So it's not following you could do that, but it's not but that would take just too too much time. You oh, I see cow number twenty five. She is this body conscious score. Now She's gonna calve at that body condition score. Now she's gonna dry, and then I do a grab of no. I think it's more like a population type of approach where you visit the farm and you see those three groups. You could create other groups. Oh, I want to see average body condition score in fresh, in high, and low groups. That that's fine too. Uh, but just have that assessment: what is the average body condition score on those groups, and how much they are changing. Okay, so so you finally work with the average. That that was the question. You you don't look at any deviation in the in that herd. So deviation. Hmm. I mean sure. variation within the herd, because maybe you have a, an average of three, but there are a high proportion of cows with low body condition score and a high proportion of cows uh, with high pro, uh, body condition score. But how are you defining low and high? That's my point. What is high and what is low? You're already trying to give a number, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's not like, you can do the range, that's fine too. So on range, I'm having my cows in the dry period between 2.8 and 3.2. On average, it's 3. And then yeah. in the fresh pan, they are from 2 to 2.5 and the average is 225, but either way, you're gonna do the difference of those two, they're gonna be too high. So I don't wanna tell you that high is more than three and low is low than two, because each farm is gonna be a little bit different. If you can keep 275, 275 in the fresh period and 275 drying off, that's no difference in body condition score. That's awesome. But very likely to happen though, right? Okay. Thanks. Does it make sense? If not, just let's keep talking. Let's do another example. No, no, I think it's, it's, it's 
that that was the question about um, if you look at the average or or mm -hmm. look at the proportion of cows with lower or high body condition cost. Okay. I think that we might be all through with questions. Um, okay. I haven't seen any more come in. Phil, um, I think we all want to join in thanking you. Uh, we had so many questions and it was clear because a lot of people really enjoyed what you were talking about and felt that they could get some really good answers. Paula has, she's going to say something. So go ahead, Paula. Yes, I, I just wanted to say that everybody was very happy with the webinar. All, all of our assistants wrote in the chat window that this was a great presentation. So thank <laughs> oh, you very thank much. You. Terrific. Thank you so much. Um, everybody, be sure that you join us for next month's two webinars that we'll have. One will be Gordy Jones, and the other, the beef webinar, will be Alfredo Di Costanzo. And that will be at 1 o'clock for the beef webinar and 6 o'clock again for the dairy webinar. And we will get this recording back out to you. Dr. Cardosa, is it permissible for you if we um, send your presentation out as a PDF? Sure. Okay, because I've had people asking. Again, thank you very much, Phil. It was certainly um, very interesting and helpful to a lot of people, I think. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of the webinar series. Goodbye, everybody. Uh, goodbye, bye.